Please, if you've got a Bible, um, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews is not a a book that we would often uh, turn to, and I think the reason for that is because it can be quite difficult to to understand and to see what, what it means for us. And this passage is certainly very much like that. We are continuing a a series thinking about, or at least when I'm speaking over the summer period, thinking what Jesus Christ has done for us. So some aspects of, of that. And today I'm thinking about Jesus as the one who defeated Satan, the one who defeated death, And we're going to turn then to Hebrews chapter 2. That's page 1202. Page 1202. It is a really difficult passage. When we read this, uh, I'm sure you'll be wondering what on earth is, is going on here. So even before perhaps I would read it, I'm just going to have a prayer that the Lord might speak to us through it to make it clear so that we understand just what, what's here. So let's, let's pray. Lord, as, as we come to your word and your truth, our longing is that you might speak to us. Make your word alive to us so that we understand. Uh, give us hearts that are able to respond. Give us minds that are able to grasp the, the truth that is in front of us. So Lord, speak to, to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 9, and let's hear God's word. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted we pray truly that the Lord would add his blessing to his word. Amen. What we're going to look at in this passage today is in effect three images, 
three pictures by which the, the author here is trying to convey something of the implications of the death of Jesus and Jesus' victory over, over the devil. So that's what we're, in essence, going to look at. By way of background, I'm going to uh, retell a story. It's uh, a story of uh, a quite famous murder in America uh, 50, 60 years ago. Uh, it's 1964, it happened in Manhattan. Uh, a lady called Kitty Genovese was out walking at night and she was approached by a, a mugger. Uh, the mugger stabbed her and she immediately screamed that she had been stabbed. And at that moment, from the tenements all around her in the apartments, lights turned on, windows opened, people evidently peered out. But nobody actually went to her assistance. No one was going in her direction. And when the mugger actually realized that no one was coming, he, while initially he had backed off, he came back. And he found where she had dragged herself. She had dragged herself into an alleyway. And in that alleyway, he murdered her. And then he stole from her purse $49. The police afterwards documented that no less than 37 people were witnesses and at least a part of what was going on throughout that sorry episode, but nobody at any point was willing to put themselves in the way of danger. No one was going to enter into that situation and bring relief to the lady in question. And I use that story by way of introduction to remind us that when it comes to what Jesus Christ has done for us, that's completely far from uh, that situation because what Jesus has done is, and, and that he has presented, and the first image that we actually have here in verse 9 is of a king, of a king who is not remote from us, but a king who fully enters into our situation and into our peril. We read verse 9 together, it says, but that we see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, but now he is crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death. For everyone, And what we understand, of course, is that what Jesus has done is that he, be, he came into our situation. And if we compare ourselves to Kitty Genovese, we were not some innocent out walking, as it were, in the middle of the night. But we were someone who was, well, we're, we're all completely culpable. We're all guilty. We are all uh, sinful in that situation. Uh, we are not innocent in any shape or form. And even though we are far from innocent, God still came into our situation in the person of Jesus and that Jesus died for us and that Jesus gave his life and that's the first image that we're trying to be present we, we are far from an innocent individual we brought judgment upon ourselves but still Jesus stepped into our world this king came into our experience and he gave his life and truly Jesus got involved. So that's the, that's the first image that we're meant to see, what it means when Jesus defeated Satan. He truly got involved in our lives and in our peril and what was going wrong with us. But the second image that is presented to us 
it's described here for us today as as a champion who, who actually saves us. And if you read with me in verse 10, it says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now, the word pioneer there uh, sometimes is translated the captain of salvation. Sometimes it's the author of salvation. Uh, could equally be translated deliverer. Um, but really what's getting behind is that this is a champion. And let's try and understand what we mean by a champion. If we imagine back in the days when armies fought, well, it's a bit like this in many ways, sadly, and what we can see in Ukraine, when, when two uh, opposing uh, factions come very close together. But when two factions come very close, and particularly in, in the ancient world, there were thousands of casualties because they were, were, were literally knocking parts off each other when they came face to face. And to try and lessen the damage of face-to-face conflict and warfare, what ancient armies often did was that they chose a champion and that this champion would represent one side. So that's the situation when we think of David and Goliath. You've got two massive armies, but rather than that they kill each other, let's get two champions who will fight on our behalf and the winner wins all. So you can see there's quite a bit at peril in many ways. And so Goliath is there, and Goliath looks like a winner. Goliath is a giant. Goliath is strong. And that's why, when you read that account, the nation of Israel are terrified because they know they do not have a champion who is able in any way to compete with Goliath. So that's the the image of what a champion is. He's one who stands and fights on behalf of everybody else. And that's the image we're meant to see of what Jesus has done. For Jesus fights on our behalf. He is the one who saves us. And the question I think that we should ask is, what was Jesus fighting? And the answer, when you read this passage, I think is very clear to us, is that we see that what Jesus was fighting was death itself. And I think most of the time we, we do try and put death out of our minds so that we don't really want to think much about it. But there are moments, particularly at certain ages and stages of life, where we think more about death. If I was to quote from Leo Tolstoy, I don't often get very cultured like this, but if I, if I, if I quote from him, and I, I'm reading this aware that I'm probably in the age bracket that, that he's referring to, and many of you will be as well, It says, something strange began to happen to me at age 50. I had a wife who loved me, and I loved her. I had a large estate, which without much effort on my part increased. My name was respected. I enjoyed physical strength. And yet, I could not live because of the knowledge of my coming death. And the question which brought me to the verge of suicide sought an answer without which one cannot live. And that question was, is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death 
would not destroy. And so he goes on to ask other questions. Is there any point in life? What's the point of it all? What's the point of all the effort that we put into stuff? Where does it all lead to? What difference does it make? And that is something I think that we all need to think about. Your life is a vapor. You're here for a while and then you won't be. And there's a fear, I think, that comes with that. If you look down to verse 15, when it describes what Jesus has actually done, you, done for you, it says that Jesus frees those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We're afraid of death, I think, in many ways, because we see that death is terminal, and it's something that it's at the end of things, and because we see that death is at the end of something, we begin to panic a little bit. In some ways, that might put a great deal of pressure on our lives. We hear expressions like FOMO, it's fear of missing out. What happens if my mates are having the most wonderful weekend and I'm not part of them? We, we worry at times when there maybe is a new job offer and you wonder to yourself, will I go for it or will I not? What's the, the fear if I get it or the fear if I don't get it? Or to be a little bit more lighthearted about it and maybe even a little bit sexist, that it's when we see the process of aging upon our physical bodies that it drives women to Botox, and men to uh, red convertibles, and maybe opening up one or two buttons on their shirt that really shouldn't be unbuttoned. Uh, but there, there is that sense that, that we can't avoid it. In the worst situation, we actually may live in fear of death because we fear, ultimately, the judgment of God. And so we start obsessing about trying to do our best ourselves, and, and we become obsessed that... I must do more to please God. And it's then that we need to realize who Jesus is, to free us from this fear. Going back to verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is the devil. Jesus died in our place, died as our champion to break the power of death so that we need not be fearful of death anymore. And there are moments in our lives currently, presently, when we need to walk with people who have been faced with that themselves and we try and encourage them as best we can. We think of many others who perhaps we wonder at times that they have endured far more than they need to endure, and we wonder how that that is that they can get through it. But isn't it also wonderful when we meet believers who even though they face this trial in their lives and what they are encountering is that they also have a deep and unshakable confidence in Jesus Christ himself, knowing that this world is not the end, but what Christ has prepared is better by far. As the Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man the glory of things that God has prepared for those who love him. And Paul also writing in 1 Corinthians 15 says, O death, where is your sting? Because Jesus has paid the price. Jesus is our champion. 
who defeats the power of death, who has defeated the devil. And the last image that comes with in this passage about how Jesus has defeated the devil and what it actually means for us is that he's a brother who's not ashamed of us. If I go back to verse 12 and verse 13, which says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And down at the end of verse 13, and here I am and the children God has given me. Now, I was thinking of trying to ask this politely at this point, but is there anyone in your family that you're a little bit ashamed of, a little bit embarrassed about? Now, what I mean by that, without being too impolite, one of the Harry Potter movies, there's a point in which Sirius Black comes back to his home place and there's a family tree painted on the wall. If you remember that scene, and he comes to where his name would have been and he sees that another magician, another member of the family has got their wand out and they've zapped his name out of the family tree because he was a disappointment. And again, being a little bit more lighthearted, if you have, if you have a brother or a sister, there has bound to have been some point at school where you were really annoyed and embarrassed because of something that your wee brother or sister did and you wanted to run away from them. But thinking about Jesus and the image that is presented here in verses 12 and 13 actually refers back to the book of Isaiah and something that Isaiah is doing with his children. And the image that is presented what Jesus is doing is that on the final day, he's presented before the Father and he is presenting his children, you. And it's like he is standing in front of God the Father and literally what is saying is that he will declare your name to his brothers and sisters. In the assembly, he will sing your praises. He will say, here am I and the children God has given me. It's like Jesus is identifying with you. He's not ashamed of you and he has every reason to be ashamed of you, hasn't he? Have you ever reminded yourself of the obsession at times that the Bible has with genealogies and the genealogy of Jesus in particular? It was common in olden days for kings to present their genealogies and they would list all the names of the great and the good and the wonderful people and the impression would be is that this is a really incredible king. This is a really incredible person. Look at these people who are his ancestors. And of course, if there were any questionable ones, you would just forget about them. You wouldn't list their names. You would conveniently forget about them. But when we turn to the genealogy of Jesus, what do we find? We things like prost we find things like prostitutes, unwed mothers, we find a girl raped by her uncle, we find David's illegitimate son born out of adultery. We find that all these people are listed within the genealogy of Jesus. And it's a reminder that Jesus is not embarrassed or ashamed of who you are. So we're presented and reminded what it means that Jesus defeated the devil, how Jesus defeated death and its implications for us is that he is a king who gets deeply involved in our lives. He's a champion who actually saves us and defeats the power of death and he ultimately is a brother who is not ashamed to name you.
And then as I look down towards the end of this passage, we wonder, what's this really mean for us? And look at the last line of verse 18. It says that he is able to help. He's able to help those who are being tempted. This is who Jesus is to you. And this is what is repeated all through the Bible, what Jesus is for you. See, whatever is going on in your life right now, whatever your particular struggle is, wherever you are feeling weak, you need to be reminded simply to look to Jesus. That's what this passage is really about. If you lack courage, you remind yourself that Jesus' estimate of you is the only thing that counts. If you are feeling overwhelmed and you're lacking, or you feel that you're in the midst of despair, you remind yourself that Jesus is the one who has been resurrected. And when Jesus has been resurrected and everything has been put right, then how can we be in despair? If you feel lonely, you remind yourself that Jesus is the only one who has promised never to leave you and never to forsake you. If you feel discouraged that you can never seem to break free from sin, you remind yourself that Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gives you that strength. And if you are struggling in any situation, if you're striving to understand and there are lots of things that happen in life and you will never fully understand why these things happen, you remind yourself what Jesus has done. See, you don't need an encouragement simply to do better or to try harder or to try your best. Religion in its general form just says things like that. Try harder, do better. But the gospel of Jesus Christ simply reminds you of what Jesus has done for you. And the command of the gospel is only one thing. It is to look to Jesus. And perhaps even just in prayer, that I will encourage you to look to Jesus just now. Let's pause and let's pray. Lord, at times we may feel overwhelmed and at times we may be fearful. But Lord, in our weaknesses, we turn to you. And that as we see Jesus and as we understand who he is and what he's done for us, Lord, may we be filled again with confidence Confidence of the gospel, of what Jesus has done, the one who is not ashamed of us, the one who will embrace us, and the one who will safely bring us through. So Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you that he sets us free. Lord, may we look to him. Amen.